Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from the extraordinary sight of a cavalry charge in East Africa to the fjords of Norway, via doodlebugs on the home front to tragedy in the Mediterranean. We begin this week with John Clarkson's story. Dear We Have Ways, thank you for the brilliant pod which I listen to avidly and have learned so much from. I also love listening to the family stories which has inspired me to send in my grandfather's story. When I was growing up in the 1970s, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and after a few whiskies on a Saturday night or while watching the world at war together, he would talk about his own experiences. I ended up with a head full of place names such as Sidi Barani, Halfaya Pass, Keren and Tobruk, which in later life I was able to read up on. My grandfather was David Thomas Roberts and he was born in Litherland, Liverpool, in 1919. He worked on the railways, but in 1938, sensing that war was coming, he joined the Liverpool Scottish, who were a TA unit and formed part of the 2nd Battalion, Cameron Highlanders. He was called up in October 1939 and sent to North Africa. The 2nd Camerons were attached to the 4th Indian Division, which was part of the Western Desert Force. Their first action was pushing the Italians out of Egypt, back into Libya, during the early part of Operation Compass. He talked of entering an Italian camp which had just been abandoned and finding breakfast still on their tables. He was transferred to East Africa, where he witnessed possibly the last cavalry attack faced by the British Army. His unit were part of an armoured column called Gazelle Force, who were advancing into Eritrea when they were attacked by an Italian cavalry unit led by an officer on a white horse. They were beaten off with the help of the artillery firing over open sights with significant losses to the Italians. My granddad always remembered the officer on the white horse and presumed he had been killed. Years later, I read about the incident and found out that the Italian officer was called Amadeo Guille who was regarded as an Italian Lawrence of Arabia type and led guerrilla operations against the British. Not only did this chap survive the charge, he lived to the age of 101. Unfortunately, my granddad had died by the time I found this out, but I'm sure that even though they were on opposite sides, he would have been pleased that this brave man made it through. After this, my granddad fought at Kerin in Eritrea, where one of the mountain's key defensive features was subsequently named Cameron Ridge after they took it following fierce fighting. Then it was back to North Africa, this time to face the Africa Corps. During the push to relieve the siege of Tobruk, the Camerons, supported by a squadron of Matilda tanks, tried to take Hellfire Pass. This would become known as Hellfire Pass due to the losses sustained by the British tanks from the German 88s. 
The power of those guns left a lasting impression on my granddad. He was involved in the Second Battle of Tobruk, where the Second Camerons fought on for a further day after the surrender of the main garrison. He was taken prisoner after being knocked out by a stick grenade, having thrown a previous grenade back that landed near him. In later years, he would sometimes get a boil on his face which would burst, and out would pop a small piece of grenade shrapnel. He was taken back to Italy and was a POW near Monte Urano. The Italian camp commandant had a fine Persian cat which had the misfortune to wander into the hungry prisoner's compound, never to be seen again. When the Italians capitulated in 1943, my grandfather left the camp and spent some weeks on a farm in the nearby hills until being rounded up again by the Germans. He ended up in Stalag 4C, near Vistritz, on the Czech-German border. This was a work camp, and the POWs were made to labour in the nearby coal mines and a large chemical plant at Brooks, which converted coal to benzene. As this factory was an important source of fuel for the Germans, it was targeted more than once by the US Army Air Force and a number of POWs were killed. When the sirens went, the guards would shout, Achtung! Achtung! Lebensgefahr! I think it translates as, attention, attention, life in danger. He used to come out with this phrase at opportune moments at home, such as if my nan dropped a plate, much to his amusement. Anyway, if an air raid was coming, the gates of the factory would be opened and the workers would jump on lorries and drive out to the countryside until the bombing finished. Following the bombing of Dresden in February 1945, he and fellow POWs were sent there as part of the clearing up operation. This must have been a grim job and he would tell how the POW work parties would be bricked by the surviving residents of the city. My nan was most indignant at this as she had been in Liverpool during the May Blitz of 1941 and was very much of the mind, well, they did it to us first. On the 8th of May 1945, Grandad was liberated by the Red Army. He managed to get hold of a Wehrmacht BMW motorbike and drove to US lines where he swapped the motorbike for a flight home to England. And so ended his war. I still have his POW dog tag and a German newsletter announcing the death of Hitler. He didn't bother with reunions after the war. I think he wanted to put it all behind him. We went to Edinburgh Castle once on holiday, and they had a casualty register for the Cameron Highlanders there. I remember him being really upset reading the name of a friend who'd been killed at Casino that he hadn't known about. Anyway, thanks again for the podcast, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to write all this down and spend some time remembering my granddad. Keep up the good work. You really have been a morale boost in these difficult times. Best wishes, John Clarkson. Our next story comes from Edward Arnett. Dear We Have Ways, Some of the earliest noises I remember in my life were the unrivalled sound of Dorniers and Heinkels droning overhead. It wasn't long before I could tell the difference between the two types of Luftwaffe bombers. I was living in Battersea, going to Honeywell Primary, when war broke out. Our home was a mid-terrace house that had, luckily for us, a coal cellar. My eldest sister, Laurie, could not bear the night bombing and was evacuated up to Papworth, Cambridge, to stay with my uncle's family for the rest of the war. I never had any fear, I can recall, and put this down to my age. Awful to say this, but I felt somehow I was different, as there were no other kids to play with. They'd all been evacuated. I'm rather proud of the fact that I was never evacuated for the whole of the war. With Honeywell shut down, it was permanent holiday. What other wish could a young boy hope to come true? My dad, Bud, was deaf so couldn't serve. He worked in Fleet Street, 
where he did a spell as a fire warden on top of the Daily Telegraph building. As the war went on, a pattern developed where it was virtually always night bombing and my mother, Daphne, allowed me out on my trike to pedal around the deserted streets during daytime, picking up shrapnel. There was a large Akak battery on Clapham Common. How dangerous it must have been for them out there overnight taking care of us. Such brave people. Tucked up in my makeshift bed down in the damp, cold coal cellar, I had no trepidation. Nothing but real excitement. I was happily picking out the Dorniers from the Heinkels. Every night in the cellar, my mum would pick a particular brick out of the wall and have a chat with the Browns next door. Later in the war, on one lovely summer's day, we were trekking up the deserted streets to Clapham South Tube Station. We'd reached Thurley Road when suddenly coming overhead at speed was an awful doodlebug. My mother threw me to the ground screaming to Dad, Get over Teddy! Bud! Quickly! I knew enough about the V1 to know if you could hear it, you were safe. It's when it stopped you worried. I will never ever forget that embarrassing moment when my mum and dad climbed all over me. The memory of the smell of the hot summer tarmac on the road and the fact that they were prepared to sacrifice themselves for me will stay with me forever. One of the first doodlebugs to fall on London was on the west side of Clapham Common. I remember dad walking up to me on a Saturday morning to the bomb site. I stood on the very edge of what seemed to be a huge crater which amazingly was still smoking. Then the V2 arrived and dad paid £100 to get a Morrison shelter erected in our dining room. The three of us slept side by side, and dear Dad, with his hearing difficulties, was always fast asleep before Mum and me. What rosses we were, waking Bud up suddenly with a fake scare. He sat up and, boing, Dad's dome smacked right onto the thick steel top that protected us. Fortunately, it wasn't too long before we were using the steel side grills for rose trees. Peace had arrived at last. Thank God. Best wishes, Edward Arnott. Our next story comes from Steve Brown at Gale. Hi all at We Have Ways. I've been a big fan of this great podcast since the first episode and it just gets better and better. Now that's out the way, I'd like to share the story of my great uncle in the year of two significant anniversaries for him. John Richard William Hopkins was born 100 years ago on the 31st of May 1921 in Dover, Kent. He was the fourth of seven children. My grandmother Vera was the sixth, five years younger. John joined the Royal Navy as an ordinary seaman on the 1st of December 1938. Whether this was due to an awareness of the tensions in Europe, a thirst for adventure or just a change from being a greengrocer's assistant, we will never know. John trained at HMS Pembroke before being assigned to HMS Calcutta in March 1940. HMS Calcutta was a First World War era cruiser completed just after hostilities ended. In 1939, she was converted into an anti-aircraft cruiser, bristling with a range of weaponry to provide cover for convoys. As part of the home fleet, she was based at Scapa Flow. When John joined her, Calcutta was escorting convoys to and from Norway. As the situation rapidly changed in early 1940, Calcutta was involved in both the invasion and evacuation of Normandy. She was then the largest Royal Navy vessel at Dunkirk, embarking 1,800 members of the BEF to Sheerness, as well as providing anti-aircraft cover and surviving a near miss on the 2nd of June. Following involvement in Operation Dynamo, Calcutta was part of the Operation Aerial Evacuation in West and Southwest France. It was during this operation that she cut HCMS Fraser into three pieces, following a mistake by Fraser's captain. John was present for all of these actions. In August 1940, John and Calcutta were part of Force H, getting vital supplies to Malta. 
For the rest of his war, John was part of the Mediterranean convoys, operating between Malta and Greece from Alexandria. As well as completing these dangerous, vital journeys, Calcutta was again called on for evacuation duty, first in Greece during late April 1941, and then Crete in May, when she was hit by two bombs but survived. In the summer of 2020, I was helping my mum sort out her loft. I came across a box of old papers and started to go through them. They were my great-grandmother's and contained much relating to John. A picture of him in his uniform, HMS Pembroke on his cap, his gunnery scores and six letters from him. Most of the content is the typical letter home fare, saying that they are OK and wishing everyone at home well. On the 28th of August 1940, he says, It will be a few months before we shall be home. We have a big job to do first, in reference to the Force H deployment. On the 26th of December 1940, his first Christmas away from home, John tells of how they celebrated on board in Alexandria. We had a fine time. The ship was decorated with flags and green leaves and coloured lights. Everyone was drunk before dinner. We had plenty to eat. We had turkeys, pork, Christmas puddings, cakes, sweet figs, dates and plenty to drink. And we had cigars. He also asks his mum to make sure she's getting his wages paid to her. The final letter is from the 24th of May 1941. It starts cheerily, John hoping that they aren't suffering from air raids in Dover and revealing that he's in contact with young ladies back home who have sent him their pictures. Unsurprisingly, considering what they were going through around Crete, the tone darkens as the letter continues. I'm still going OK. That's all I can say about myself. We've had some bad times lately, but still very lucky. I've touched wood and whistled. I can tell you one thing. I don't know what the Army and Air Force would do without the Navy out here. The Air Force let us down a stinker out here. This will probably get cut out, but it's just the way I feel. This was not only the last letter from John in the collection, but the last letter he ever wrote. Having left Alexandria on the 1st of June to return to Crete for a third time, Calcutta was spotted by two Junkers JU-88s. Two bombs were enough to sink Calcutta in just a few minutes. Her sister ship, HMS Coventry, managed to save 255 lives. But John was one of the 107 lost. Included in the collection of papers is the telegram informing my great-grandmother of John's death, a letter from King George offering condolences, the official letter confirming John is presumed to have died, and another from the Imperial War Graves Commission announcing that he would be commemorated on the Chatham Naval Memorial. Able Seaman John Hopkins, SSX 28303, lost his life in the service of his country at the tender age of 20 years and one day. 2021 marks 100 years since he was born and 80 years since he died. A brave man, who I am proud to be related to. Thanks. Steve Brownett Gale. The last family story this week is from Douglas Weir. Hi James and Al. I've been listening to all your podcasts from early on and really enjoy them. This story is about a friend and work colleague of my dad. My dad and Pat were in the Remy, as they were motor mechanics by trade. Dad always said he wasn't in the war, he just did his national service. But I heard stories of him guarding POWs at Lanark, and also the story of them being chased by a German plane while they were, for some reason, in a Sunderland flying boat. Dad told me my grandfather lied about his age to join up for World War I. He moved his birth date from December to September, and I suspect my dad might have done something similar. 
His friend Pat most definitely was in the war and I was engrossed by his stories of being in North Africa. On one visit to his house, he brought out some war trophies, two pistols he recovered from an Italian pilot. He also had a black dagger with a carved eagle's head at the top of the handle. It had two ruby red eyes and was kept in a leather belt scabbard. This had been on the body of a German officer. I was mesmerised by these stories and in particular by the following. On recovering the dagger, Pat also helped himself to the German's leather boots, which were knee-length and smooth leather and which he thought would be much better for him riding on a motorbike when called to do so. He was going to put the boots on right away, but due to lack of time, he instead packed them and said he'd change into them later. When they pulled into the next town, they found themselves in the marketplace. Pat was standing at a market stall when he happened to glance down and saw a hand feeling the laces on his boots. It turned out some Gurkhas were hiding below the market stall waiting to ambush the Germans. He said the thought of feeling cold steel if the Gurkha had seen the smooth leather of the German boots encouraged him to throw the officer's boots away as soon as possible. I'm not surprised. Best wishes, Douglas Weir. That's it for this week. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the family stories tab. A reminder that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.